one. Welcome to Sounding Point Podcast. I'm Joseph Christensen, and with me today is Michael Delphine. He is a two-time classmate of mine at both Peabody Institute and San Francisco Conservatory of Music at different times. And now he's a doctoral candidate at Cincinnati College Conservatory of Music for, I believe, keyboard and historical performance. Frankly, you've you've uh, you've switched around, so it's uh, it's sometimes uh, hard to keep track. But Michael, it's a it's a honor to have you on the show. Oh, the pleasure is mine. <laughs> okay, man. Tell me tell me what's been going on. You uh, we tried to do this last week, but then you gave me the this very like uh sort of apocalyptic i i i feel like we're in the middle of an apocalypse because you and well tell me what happened last week why why couldn't you make it to the podcast as scheduled because i was literally running late but actually i was running along and a little dog about the size of my foot decides to run up to be a chomp out of my leg which meant calling the health department and tracking down the owner and making sure I don't have rabies because my old yeller impression isn't very good. And then after all the phone calls were over, I practiced clavichord and made a cheesecake. <laughs> okay. That's... And you were intrigued by that order. So uh, I, I thought I'd uh, mention it. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you were attacked by a dog. Can you take me through that? <laughs> Where were you running? Why were you oh, attacked gosh. by a dog? What were you doing <laughs> to this poor animal? Oh, uh, I was about, I don't even think I was like a tenth of a mile away. <laughs> like I just started a run to go pick up some tea. Because um, social distancing, you, you should uh, clog the uh, tea shops. Ah. But we were running low, uh, my wife and I, and I figure, well, it's only a mile and a half away. And, yeah, little dog goes chump. Did it drop blood? Oh, yeah. Got a lovely mark. <laughs> wow. It's, I mean, it, it shouldn't have been a big deal, but it's not exactly... Um, polite to punt a dog into the next street over when its owner is right there yeah because you know that that's an effective way to keep from getting bit but yeah, <laughs> yeah we don't we don't endorse but i'm okay no rabies you're good oh yeah well i don't know that's still out that's still out um the jury's still out on that one but um, well i got rabbit about harpsichord a few years ago so okay that's, that's probably why <laughs> was this the dog tea, by the way Excellent. This is coffee. Um, Excellent. Now, so the dog was off the leash, I'm assuming. <laughs> so, yeah, dog was, sorry, you, you, um, you scru scrunched out for a moment. Sorry, so the dog was off the leash. Oh, I'll scrunch back in somehow. <laughs> please do, please do. Uh, uh, the owner just, <laughs> let me see. <laughs> that's it you did it now that's captured on the internet for the yeah. world to see uh, now that off the leash the owner didn't grab it and no big deal she was she was very nice about it and the dog has its shots and 
Okay. No issues. Yeah. And I have all my shots and I did it back. Okay, good. I was going to ask, is the dog okay? Uh, <laughs> no, but I, um, I have that. I'm not very uh, opinionated when it comes to people's pets in general. I'm pretty laissez-faire in most ways. I really do not like it when people let dogs off the leash, though. I've changed on that one. Mm -hmm. I, um, because I, I was actually running a couple of years ago in San Francisco, and I saw this dog across the street right as this car was coming around the corner. And their owner Ooh. was right there, and if they were on the leash, they would have been fine. Thank God the, car, the driver was, had quick reactions, and they stopped. But that was, I mean, you know, sure. that was a dead dog in, in most other circumstances. And I was like, what? so what is the net benefit of keeping the dog off the leash so it feels better it's, it's really so the owner feels better so they don't feel like they're you know subjugating their dog or something but if you want to keep your dog sure. alive yeah maybe if you're way out in the middle of the country it doesn't matter as much but yeah and you know that's that's sort of where i grew up didn't have to um, um didn't really never had to tie up our um rottweiler mixes but they were they were very well trained, and that's key. Mm -mm. And if, you know, of course, we go camping and um, always on a leash. Right, exactly. So um, anyway, the, um, definitely the first time talking about that on this podcast. Definitely <laughs> um, <laughs> the first time. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> but going into, I guess, what we've been going through, so. I've been, um, I've been, this is the, since Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. So this is the fifth straight day of power outages in Livermore. Oh man. Which means I don't have internet, which means by the way, since I teach online, right? So I, that's my one form of, of income against all this Corona uh, disruption, right? I'm not seeing people in person, so I'm only teaching online. Mm. And then when they shut the power off, they usually shut it off around two and it goes through the afternoon. It means my teaching is shot. Th thank God I um, have Christy, my girlfriend, uh, and I go to her uh, house and she is in Tracy and that is unaffected. And in fact, most of my students live in Livermore and they're unaffected. So it's not that it's not that I'm wishing my misfortune to spread across the land to others, but it's unbelievable <laughs> how how they're taking this single neighborhood. And I know it's not just me. I, I know it's rotating neighborhoods across the state, but it's unbelievable how they just pick specific neighborhoods to be the like whatever you want to call it, the hobby horse, <laughs> the the uh, whipping boy of of this power outage and then <laughs> and then others are totally fine there's no disruption to 90 percent of the state and it's nuts mm. it sucks being in this thing anyway so that's my complaint <laughs> i feel bad about that and i thought and i thought fresno was the armpit of california <laughs> no, i'm kidding it still I, is it still, still is <laughs> <laughs> um maybe maybe bakersfield Oh, Chowchilla, there we go. Chowchilla, mmm. Or nice. Manteca. What, yes. what would you name your city the Spanish word for lard? I, I just, oh, I really? never could understand. 
It shows you how much I know about Or Spanish. my favorite. My favorite, just south of you, is Los Baños. Los Baños. And man, you you drive through that place in the summer, and oh, it smells like it. Yeah. The cows. Mm-hmm. We're, um, we are having a heat wave right now, so that idea does not I appeal to me that. ever, but particularly right now. <laughs> How are you doing? What's going on over there? Sorry, I've been taking up your podcast complaining about my own life. Oh, um. Well, you mentioned um, I'm at I'm at CCM. We're gearing up to start for the semester, and fun times that is. Good. And when? How is that different from usual now with the whole pandemic? Well, God be praised, we can still um, get access to the school, and uh, some people are opting for in-person lessons. Other people are saying, "Ain't no way, mm-hmm. <laughs> Jose." And oh, you are Jose too. Now that I think yeah, about it. Yeah, that's true. Um, well, I'll, I'll be able to take um, harpsichord lessons. Ensembles are going to be interesting because there are going to be some online components. There are going to be some in-person, very spaced out. Assuming people are willing to go ahead and do that. But my assistantship is playing para. And our supervisor has said, I will never require you to come in person because she's a little more, um, oh, I hate to use the word enlightened, but (laughs) she's at least not, she's not uh, blowing off all precautions. Mm -hmm. Good. Well, that's nice that you'll get to be on campus. I think that's relatively uncommon. Um, I don't know about every school, but certainly yeah. my my uh, students heading off to school this year. There's there's nothing in person for many colleges in California. Sure. Well, the good thing too is that um, every it, for CCM and for UC in general, anything that can be completely online has been moved to online. Like the entire, uh, let's say, composition, musicology, and theory department. Right. Departments are all online. I see. So it's a little hybrid of both. Yeah. And then anything with voice, <laughs> like it's not just six feet distance. It's whatever, 10, 12 feet distance. And of course that means a bunch of teachers are saying we're not showing up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's well, it's, it's good to have that option. Good, good that your organization is flexible. So what was I going to say? Yeah. Oh, um, I wanted to, I think, you know, it'd be good to step back and, and just give, give people a little insight into you and what you're doing. So like, as long as I've known you, you've been a, a, uh, pianist, piano player, nerd, <laughs> that too, <laughs> that too, but you've been, uh, you've been tickling the ivories for as long as I've known you. And that has, uh, recently somewhat changed right so um i just wanted to um ask you kind of your journey from piano to historical Mm -hmm. performance could you describe that a little bit because i think i mean to be honest (laughs) i don't even know who listens to this podcast (laughs) i don't know (laughs) i don't know the target demographic yet so i think that you know the the listenership of this podcast ranges from from highly specialized musicians to maybe non, um, non-specialist musician, maybe just people interested in music. So, so, so taking, stepping back and 
explaining for people who maybe aren't as engaged in the world of music, how would you describe um, your sure. kind of journey from classical piano major to where you are now? Well, short is to borrow C.S. Lewis, a reluctant convert <laughs> initially. Nice. But I'd say I have to give a little bit of background. Um, when I was a kid, a kid, kid, not a kid in his late 20s, um, <laughs> I, uh, I was very much drawn to the music world in general, not necessarily people. And uh, this is before YouTube, before IMSLP. So, you know, what do we have? Uh, as many CDs as we can persuade the librarians and our parents to take us home or to, to, and to let us take home. And for me, it meant, uh, you know, growing up in a rural area, every time I had access to uh, music or recordings, sheet music or recordings, just devouring it. And in some of that music, which, you know, ranged from uh, Renaissance to uh, <laughs> music from the late 1990s, Whoa. as it was back then, in <laughs> <laughs> um, early 2000s. Uh, and don't get me started on the fact that uh, incoming freshmen were born after 2000s. Mm -hmm. Like, they're so young. I'm so old. <laughs> um, going through all of this music, I'd, I'd be listening to, let's say, Bach played on um, the flute and harpsichord or uh, Baroque ensembles. And they think, well, A, why are they flat? That is so weird. Because they would try to play along on a keyboard at 440 and go, wait a second. <laughs> um, and that's, that's when I, f I figured out about the one of the ways we figured out I had perfect pitch, but that's another story. That's cool. Um, I heard some. I heard a lot of Baroque music, and I remember learning Bach on the piano, preludes and fugues and dances and Italian concerto and whatnot. I remember thinking, okay, well, these people on the recordings are playing their eighth notes detached and their 16th notes what sound legato. I want to try that on the piano. And I didn't really care beyond that. It's like, I don't want to read figure bass. That looks hard. <laughs> and, oh, gosh, remember when we got, when we were at Peabody, end of our freshman year, we tried um, jamming with yeah. Rene, uh -huh. Rene Delgado and Brian Kay and, there's a picture of the at the harpsichord. I'm like, this thing is so cool, but I don't ever want to learn this god awful <laughs> piece of junk. Um, that was probably the sensor was thinking yeah, yeah, <laughs> of yeah. what I was thinking. And then, Thank God. you know, taking yeah, oh come on, um, taking uh, Adam Pearl's keyboard literature, thinking, oh, this music is is actually really cool but I don't really want to learn it, but I know it's really cool. So whatever. And then we get to San Francisco and I, I still owe um, Sarah Douglas, me Blaley. <laughs> Shout out enormous to Sarah. Dead of gratitude. Yes. Um, she's doing incredible work in Canada and the Netherlands or like, I forget where exactly, but um, she really twisted my arm and said, you should, you know, you should, you should try the harpsichord. You should try the forte piano. You, you should read the CPE treatise that I gave you for your birthday or whatever it was. <laughs> I actually am reading it right now. <laughs> um, 
And she, it's funny because she left me some notes in it, um, underlining certain areas or writing LOL or whatever it might be on CPE's more snarky comments. And, and for the record, this is Carl Philip Emanuel's Bach um, essay on the true art of playing the of keyboard instruments. <laughs> oh, well, um, he was the son of JS. So, you know, he has some, some, uh, some authority clout. in that area. Yes. Yes. And he even said that he sometimes uses his father's examples, um, which don't do terribly much harm on students. So for something like that, I, I should pull it up sometime. So I remember um, her telling me she could get into certain rooms at SFCM where you could try a harpsichord or a forte piano or whatnot. And she says, this stuff, this stuff suits you. And I said, I'll get out of here. Um, I don't have time for this. I'm going for a doctoral program in piano, but secretly I'm thinking maybe in another lifetime. Mm. And then I, I took, I had taken a continual class with James, who's a wonderful teacher at San Francisco. And I thought, well, okay, there's a, some aspect of rudimentary keyboard harmony that I, I could probably try someday. I get to see some, which for a long time had had a dearth of historical performance and i think oh my goodness i had it so lucky at peabody and san francisco and i really could have delved into this and you know you you often don't know how much you have to be grateful for until it's not there anymore so it's okay i started taking harpsichord lessons and uh, figured bass class and baroque performance class with my my dear teacher and mentor dr michael unger realizing holy expletives galore this music is so incredible and historical performance isn't just a bunch of stodgy old men and women telling us how to play according to rules and whatnot um Listening, listening to historical ensembles, you can just sense the life pouring out of their performances. You know, we, we, we were lucky at San Francisco and, and Peabody to watch the, the Peabody Renaissance Ensemble mm -hmm. or the SFCM Baroque Orchestra. And, and, you know, these are students and it still sounds great. Yep. <laughs> and, um, I'd say a month after my first harpsichord lesson, I had harpsichord you playing the music of Lou Harrison, which um, <laughs> is a project that got handed off to me from the percussion department via the interim dean of CCM, who was a musicologist and harpsichordist, and then via my harpsichord teacher, because none of them had time for the project. And I look at this piece and I go, Okay, I like new music. <laughs> and listening to the recording, I'm thinking, oh, Michael, you didn't know what you were doing. But at the time, and I mean, I'm still not sure I do, but at the time, I go through the performance and I'm, I'm really enjoying this. It's um, February of 
2017, so the Lou Harrison Centennial. And some friends of mine in, in the composition department and piano department came up to me and they, they, they said, oh, there was some really neat, um, really neat colors coming out of the instrument. And you, you played really well. This is, this is really cool stuff. And I thought, well, okay, maybe I have a little bit of a knack for this. And then in the following couple of months, major successes of getting into the American Bach Soloists Academy, which was mind-blowing, such a powerful immersion. Um, getting into the University of Michigan's Early Keyboard Institute and getting to take lessons on harpsichord and forte piano and you know, teachers telling me, you, you have a knack for this, you really should pursue this. And then um, Sarah telling me, I told you so, very, very kindly, of course. <laughs> And winning um, the Catacoustic Consorts Early Music Grant, which, which paid the tuition for ABS Academy, which is now free. So hmm. it's a fantastic program. And so gaining, gaining a lot of momentum here. And um, what, what is his name? Robert, um, Robert Mealy from... Um, Juilliard, who he runs the program, the historical performance program, he invited me to apply and um, I actually ended up getting into Juilliard for our harpsichord masters, but wow. I just, I had to turn them down. The cost of living was, was just a bit too much. So in instead, uh, um, I ended up staying for an artist diploma, which eventually turned into a doctorate. And the momentum I've, I've been very fortunate to experience has led to lectures for Early Music America, which is complete with uh, a table shattering in the middle. <laughs> uh, Historical Keyboard Society of North America, uh, playing for them, winning a scholarship for them, or with, through them, wrong preposition. And teaching figured bass here for a semester, which is um, wonderful experience and and getting to really really work with CCM who want to do historical performance um, maybe not are not sure where to begin and you know among students and then among faculty those who realize that okay there are people here who can actually play figured bass who are decent collaborators I have a fantastic conducting teacher here in the choral department. His name is Lincoln Brett Cornish Scott. Hmm. Dr. Scott. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and we've, we've done some um, collaboration of him conducting from the harpsichord and that's probably what I'm doing this semester <laughs> to help fulfill my choral conducting cognate ensemble requirements. All right. Have you conducted yeah, from times. the keyboard before? I did, in fact. A year ago, my <laughs> for my piano DMA, for that harpsichord cognate recital, I conducted a Corelli concerto from the keyboard, oh. and it was that was one of the defining moments, or Delphine, I'm sorry, <laughs> defining moments for me because that piece of music, it's in four four movements. And the movement has a coda after this this hybrid 
Jig Singh has this coda which sends the, the entire ensemble, which is um, um, two violin parts, viola, um, continuo, and all of that in the grosso section of the orchestra, but there's a lot of doubling going on. Um, it's sending that entire ensemble racing towards the finish line. And as the ensembles, everybody's sawing their instruments in half on, with their bows. And, and the momentum picks up. There's this overwhelming crescendo. And everybody just goes all out towards the finish line. And in one of these moments, I thought, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. <laughs> Which is interesting because almost 20 years earlier. No, actually, um, yeah, about 20 years earlier, I had thought, I thought to myself, music is what I want to do the rest of my life. The end of my 20s, <laughs> um, historical performance, it's the, the energy there is so relentless and compelling and it, it's a loop. It, the more you do, the more excited you get, and the more excited you get about it, the more you do. And mm. people, people are interested in this because nine times out of 10, you talk to some Joe Schmo on the street and they'll tell you, I, I've never heard a harpsichord. And you get to show them what it sounds like. And they say, oh, that's so cool. It's, it's this quote, ancient sounding instrument. <laughs> and there's, there's some real connection there. People are interested. And you want to communicate. And that's what it really boils down to. You're communicating music in what we, what's our best guess of an older style of playing. That is it's pretty yeah, great. Yeah, that's a really um, nice way of expressing what, what historical performance means to you. And I think, I think like, um, I need to tell you a story that might, might hurt your heart a little bit but because it also upsets me looking back on it um i won't i won't say which teacher but one of my early teachers <laughs> one of my early teachers uh had like you know the kusc or whatever they had at that time the uh classical music radio station on in between lessons or something and it was like some corelli or some whatever tartini some some kind of um Concerto Grosso, and it was historical performance, no vibrato and anything. And this is like this, you know, golden era kind of violin person. And they were just listening, and they're like, are they trying to sound bad? <laughs> they're like, they're not vibrating, they're not sustaining, they're not doing this, they're not doing this. And that tirade just stuck in my mind for the longest time. Are they trying to sound <laughs> And um, I think I was a snob for a long time. I think I was more sort of indoctrinated into this sort more, I don't even know what to say, traditional 20th century way of thinking of, of musical sound. And it wasn't, it's really on, only been in the last maybe four or five years that I've kind of come around to listening to historical performance and been like, oh, wait a second, this isn't like stuffy, you know? This is actually, in, in many ways, it's um, more free than the traditions that we've developed since then in the 20th century. Mm -hmm. um, I think it was um, um, Fabio Biondi that I was listening to. It was one of those um, 
one of those European um, historically informed uh, projects playing the Four Seasons. It's those European. <laughs> it was one of those, and it was just the tempi they took in the Four Seasons, and the and the sound effects and the choices they made artistically were so wild and daring, like the the um, mm -hmm. sul ponticello and the weird like bow vibrato and just like the odd ornaments and. It, 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 listening to it, it was like, whoa, this is very creative. This is not like, I'm going back into the ancient tomes and figuring out what they told us to do back then. It's actually quite the opposite. It's very creative. So, yeah. Um, so, how would you describe historically informed performance as it stands today? Like, what, what is it, what is meaned by? What, sorry, what is meant by historically informed performance and what happened in between or, and what, mm. what is it opposed to? Um, can I get back to you in about five years after <laughs> writing a book on subject? <laughs> Gosh. Ah. Hmm. I think a good way to approach this is actually to take apart what this um, teacher of yours said and thought about it. Because in the 1900s, there was an early music revival courtesy of figures like Arnold Dolmetsch, who was actually turn of the century or um, 1800s into 1900s who decided, okay, you know, we should probably preserve some, some of these instruments and see what we can do with them. Others, others followed, whose names are um, legend, for they are many, and they are legendary now. <laughs> and, yeah, the puns have <laughs> only gotten worse. Shout out to the Christians who caught that reference, but go on. <laughs> Or, or those who like Will Smith, but okay, anyhow. that too. <laughs> um, if you listen to early recordings in the 1900s of people like um, Nadia Bolan, who went after Monteverdi and other composers of the uh, early Baroque, they're playing music that has been carefully preserved, and they're using the understandings of late 19th century performance practice, which is, is very, <laughs> I hate to use the word romantic in nature, but uh, you, you listen to, let's say, Rachmaninoff and Chrysler play the Greek Sonata, um, third Greek Sonata, that's a pretty good indicator of what was considered standard at the time, although those, those two are legends oh, incredible. for their performances. Now, a lot of um, figures in the early 20th century believed that, okay, well, we should probably try to understand what, what the composers themselves and those who knew them had to say about the music. And it, they realized, oh, we actually have to really strip back or strip down on how much vibrato we're using because just an expressive ornament. Though even that is up for debate. There's some... Um, 
there's some heated discussions about Leopold Mozart and me and Gimignani, other people who wrote on how to play the violin in the 18th century. So let's let's pare back, pare, mixing expressions. Let's pare down on what we I think would be the natural way to play according to how we were taught. And very often you get a lot of recordings that seem kind of stale and stuffy. Now, coming out of that, well, we have to realize that this is the music of, in Europe. This is music in Europe. They were ahead of um, the U.S. in so many different ways, musically and potentially otherwise, but that's for another discussion. Um, it's music of European culture, and the fire has been ahead in European performance of this music for some time now. So it can really influence who is listening and when and to what and who is performing and how it was recorded and on what instruments and of the century of this music. And unfortunately, so many people have the misconception of early music and historical performance and that's just trying to fit us all in a square box and everything. But really, it's such more freeing because you realize you, you have one rule that guides all of the treatises and the composers and performers um, of music before 1800. That is simply good taste. No matter what performers and composers did and specified in their music, they would always go back to good taste. And even C.P.E. Bach writing this massive didactic treatise on how to play keyboard instruments in which he highly favors the clavichord. Um, he says that you need to look good performers. You need to go to concerts. You need to have a good teacher. You have to work with good singers. You actually have to be in the music and the music has to be alive and surrounding you. And that is all of this is a facet in historical performance that we don't readily see because people who hold to a romantic, quote, tradition of playing will find themselves, unfortunately, threatened because, well, frankly, it forces us to expand our way of thinking and hearing and playing. It's kind of sad because there's much we can learn from a style of playing that we're not used to. You know, we don't have to take all of it, but um, I'll give you two examples. Ian Swenson, who teaches at San Francisco, will, will try his hand at historical performance. And I mean, it's obvious he's, he's lear he learns from it. And he's, a, he's an amazing musician on you know, modern instruments. <laughs> One doesn't win number twice for no reason. And then another example would be um, 2019 January, Richard Agar came to um, Cincinnati Symphony and 
conducted that Bach Brandenburg Five, Four Seasons, and I believe there was a Bach um, orchestral suite on the program. And everybody was playing at 440 on their modern instruments, but there was there was this element of historical just made everything go to a, the next level of fire and commitment in the playing. And my harpsichord teacher and I were talking about it afterward and his remark to me was, there were things he was doing that just shouldn't have worked, but they did. <laughs> timing and pitch bending even, it was, it was incredible. So if modern players can go from one weekend of playing music, a very robust orchestral sound under one conductor, and you know, it's the way we may understand it, to playing with um, elements of a performance practice that's it's very, very different, you know, anybody can do it. Mm -hmm. I find and that why not? The music's so good. Yeah, um, yeah, that's, and it's funny how much of the repertoire, it since this pandemic, there has been so much solo Bach. <laughs> like there's sure. there's a centrality to the Baroque repertoire even today, um, that I think there's nothing to be lost by learning as much as we can about this, this uh, mm -hmm. performance practice. Um, I, what you mentioned about the, t the idea of taste, it's kind of interesting. I think there's, I have two thoughts about that. I'm just gonna say them in no particular order, see what you think about them. One is that I think the closest I ever got to a feeling of historically informed performance or, or feeling like, oh, I'm, getting, I'm gaining a sense for um, the feeling, like the, the oral tradition of this particular style of music. I, in actually when, I, when we were at school together, maybe a couple of years before, I think I started this in undergrad and it went a little through, mm -hmm. um, it went a little through my master's that I was obsessed with this, but I, I was reading biographies of people like Arthur Schnabel and Gregor Piatigorsky, mm -hmm. kind of these romantic era, great people. And they were just talking about kind of the tradition of chamber music. Um, and they would just recount these famous stories uh, of these parties with, you know, Rachmaninoff and all these, yeah. all these fabulous instrumentalists gathered together and, and playing together in living rooms. And how it, that was the chamber music culture, like the salon culture was like this very convivial atmosphere. And, um, and it's very much attached to this idea of a leader, like how um, leader, I mean, piano repertoire, a great deal of 19th century piano repertoire is also wrapped up in the salon culture, but but more specifically, oh, sure. Ger German leader have this amazing intimacy to them. There, it is a mm -hmm. form of music intended for a small group of dear friends, right? And just, oh, sure. I, I, the way I started, I would listen to more and more Lieder and Schumann and Schubert in particular. And um, I started to realize that there's like this specific culture to the sound that you, 
Uh, and I would hear Leon Fleischer talk about this. Someone was playing, um, oh, I mean, we, uh, as of the recording of this podcast, the great maestro Leon Fleischer has passed away a few weeks ago, and he's someone who's had a great impact on, on both of us. So maybe we can talk oh, sure. talk about him a little bit later. But I remember seeing master classes of him when, where someone was, was playing like Carnival or some Schumann piece, and um, and he would talk at length about the leader. And he's like, "Do you have you listened to this? Have you listened to this? And he's like, you won't be able to play Schumann faithfully until you understand like his mode of expression, like the way he's trying to express himself um through his leader and um anyway so why why am i talking about this i almost felt like after immersing myself in this in this culture for over the course of a few years that i was like oh now when i play this music i have almost a feeling of this i mean you know i don't know i could i could play some of this repertoire or whatever um for someone back then, I have no idea how they would feel about it, but I feel a connection to it. I feel like I have some, I have a beginning to gain context for it. And that, to me, that's... I think you're absolutely right. Yeah. No, go ahead. Go ahead. So, so I think that, like, that, there's a beautiful aspect to that that's very delicate. It's very fragile because uh, the further we go on in time is the further we get away from the source of a lot of that material. So it takes a lot of sensitivity on the performance part today and a lot of historical interest to go back to these very, very refined forms of self-expression that have less context as we go forward. So um, now, so there's, that's the great thing for taste is like once you, once you inhabit that world for a while of, of, refining your taste for a particular kind of music it it has a spirit to it you're you're entering into its spirit in a special way that you wouldn't get by just you know picking up the sheet music and playing through it and being like oh here it is bye you know (laughs) this kind of Mm -hmm. but my counterpoint sorry i'll let you talk in a second (laughs) my counterpoint is um probably um one of the most done to death topics I, you probably have slight levels of cringe at, at hearing about this, but, but you know, like sting playing the, uh, Theorbo, right. And, oh, or, or, or it might not have been a Theorbo. It might've been a loot. Um, Oh, do you, do you not know about this? No, I'll have to check this out. Yeah. So sting the singer, the police singing Dowland. So, that's I'm one of the look this up. <laughs> okay, well, it's it's one of the more famous examples of <laughs> historically <laughs> informed or uninformed performance that's out there, and I think for me the there's almost unfortunately the the temptation or the danger of historically informed performance. Maybe you can tell me I'm wrong. Is almost this almost this. Uh, hierarchy of taste where you have this small number of people who have obviously studied and dedicated their lives which is beautiful but also there's a lot of people in that world who would look at something like what sting is did with the lute and playing dowland obviously with very little context as to how this is historically performed and they'd look at that and be kind of dismissive and say oh that's cool that's a pop star but this you know we are the tastemakers we get to say what is valid in this world and there is there is a danger of restrictiveness to that right 
and um i don't know what i'm i guess as a music as the the further i get on away from music school i'm i'm starting to see fewer and fewer like um fewer and fewer separations between different kinds of music different different kinds of musicians it's like once we're out out here in yeah. the world we're all just trying to be mu musicians we're all playing what we what we want and what sounds good to us at the end of the day so um so some of that sort of snobbishness that restrictiveness kind of strikes me the wrong way what do you think about all that <laughs> <laughs> um that's that'll be another five years okay, no. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah. you know your 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 thought about the sting and the lutes reminded me of uh, um, Yanni incorporating summer from the Four Seasons and <laughs> well he's making millions and we are not so <laughs> taste taste changes with every generation um, This music is greater than any interpretation, frankly. Um, I think that's why Baroque music is the greatest music. It's survived for hundreds of years and it still has enormous appeal because if it's, I, I don't want to say the word purity per se, but certainly clarity, um, transparency, and certain aspects of the music then will guide the performance of it. Um, if you, on the piano, if you were to pedal your way through an entire Bach piece and make it obvious that you're, you know, doing that, somebody's probably going to say, uh, what is this, Bach or Chopin, or Debussy or something. But, um, I was in a discussion with some friends about this earlier. And transparency probably is going to need transparency and performance. So that's, that's one thought that the, the music will demand a certain honesty about actually asking yourself over and over again, what is this that I'm playing? How can I bring out what I see in it? And granted that's, that's very, very subjective, but you hit on an extraordinarily important point and the, the previous point you made that you feel <laughs> this sounds so snobbish but you feel informed when you get informed it I, I don't even like the word informed it makes it sound like I have information that you do not <laughs> but that information is is public domain and you know go read the book for yourself um, one of my teachers once said in a studio class that an uninformed performance is an ignorant performance. And I think there's, there's a lot of truth to that. I, I think he was absolutely right. Getting into the context and the culture, the literature, the drama, the aesthetics, the philosophy, the religion, the scandal, even the politics, the wars going on, the, I don't know, the spice trade, the tea and coffee, whatever the textiles that went into the fabric people were using or the, the technology and building, all of these different things that go into the context of the music itself is the responsibility of 
every musician, not just people who want to be his historically informed. I mean, I think it really should be historically responsible. Hmm. Historically responsible performance. We should market that and get a quarter every time someone says it. <laughs> really, it's the responsibility of every musician to go do some homework, find out something about the piece you are playing. One of my teachers, my, my teacher actually, uh, for recitals, she used to require her students to find out some information about the composer, about the piece, maybe communicate something we'd like. And, you know, you could read it on a little three by five to the audience, but she wanted to produce musicians, not just pianimals, as Paul Hirsch would call them. <laughs> Shout out to Paul Hirsch. Yes, yes. Who encourages us still to this day to say reasonably cogent things. <laughs> yes, reasonably cogent. Which is one of the and, highest you know, just... uh, one of the highest compliments I've ever <laughs> heard in, <laughs> one in, in class. Oh gosh. Good times. Um and you know, he he's somebody who could tell us stories about when he was a a violist and pianist in his 20s and 30s and talking to people who were born in the 1800s and who could tell stories about you know going back further and further historical performance in the 19th century really teaches us that we aren't that far removed right. from certain composers you mentioned leon fleischer um they used to do these beethoven marathons at Peabody and do you know all 32 sonatas in one day in his studio and one of an enormous point of pride among um, his students is that they were in a direct line from Beethoven, Beethoven, Czerny, Liszt, Leszczycki, Schnabel, Fleischer. Um, such lines exist throughout um, all of all of music really. Um, Schnabel traditions and recordings, and even though he later sort of disowned his own edition, he is a great example of what performance practices were like late 19th century. Florence May and Fanny Davies, both British pianists, um, Elona Ebenschutz, Italka Freund, Carl Friedberg, who was um, Teachers, teacher of one of my teachers, they, they all worked with um, Brahms. Mm -hmm. um, we have uh, recordings of Carl Friedberg's lessons or teaching, teaching them, David Hungerford, I believe his name was, at Juilliard. And we have him saying on record, oh yeah, Brahms played all his music for me. <laughs> all his piano music. He'd, he, he played it for me in private and uh, even shoots saying on recording, oh, Brahms played Opus 118 and 119 for me um, before he published it. Mm -mm. He just he brought me into a room down and played for me. And later he played it for me again. And, you know, stories like that by people who made recordings of Brahms and Schumann, that's a huge window into the past. And that goes along with the culture. We also have anecdote and it's you know you have to take it with some grains of salt but these are these are bits of information that 
are readily available to us. And the more we can take advantage of it, I personally find that the more rewarding our music making can be. And the more we actually might learn, you, you hear the timing of people in the early 1900s that record, it's gonna just blows your mind how much liberty they take and how exciting their performances are. It doesn't have to be you know, perfect. Mm -hmm. um, pianists talk about Courtois recordings, which are so sublimely beautiful. And yet you, you wouldn't dare play like that in a competition. <laughs> it's yep. a strange double standard. Yeah, I love Alfred Cortot. Phenomenal. Um, I think that's a really good response. I think historically responsible performance is, is a funny way of saying it because regardless of how far to the historical side you go or if you lean more romantic, you still, you don't want to avoid the historical side out of ignorance just as you wouldn't want to ignore the traditions that sprung up in the 20th century just because you know these are closer to us in time more people are familiar with this but um and to be clear there there doesn't have to be a dichotomy between what would be historically informed and what would be we keep using the word romantically informed um there's the two are not enemies by any stretch. Well, they, it, one can inform the one can inform the other, and <clears throat> it leads to a very highly oxygenated performance. And, and I mean, it's uh, for lack of a better expression. To some degree, it's it's the same unbroken tradition. However, you know, years removed and. Mm. Um, and yeah, so and there isn't that separation in reality. It's just interesting how, um, I suppose, there was almost a, since it is, it's almost a, a result of it being an unbroken tradition, that you didn't have this mm -hmm. sense, maybe in the 20th century, that we were doing anything like wrong or against what Bach or any of these people would have said. I think it probably has also to do with the availability of urtexts and the research that went into it oh yeah um i'll never forget the, my first uh my first coaching with seth knopp at uh peabody institute <laughs> yes um i go in with my i think it was a piano quintet we were playing schumann piano quintet and he uh asked us to bring our Bar baron rider score to the first re rehearsal we had ordered it you know or we were, t we were supposed to have ordered it, but we uh, were freshmen and we had no idea what we were doing. <laughs> and um, we show it to the first rehearsal with a Fisher or some Shermer edition in the uh, library. And, and he's like, so where's the Baron Rider edition? And he's like, oh, we're like, oh, sorry, we ordered it. Probably, we probably ordered it like the hour before. <laughs> but <laughs> we're like, oh, it's on its way. We ordered it. And he's like, okay, the five of you, come back when you get have your baron rider and and that was the that was our entire first coaching with him <laughs> and it was so yeah, funny like i'd never cool. encountered anything like that before i was like wow what, what a jerk <laughs> but i've come to since realize now since i've been teaching more and students bring these me these bizarre editions i'm like where did you get that bowing or that fingering 
And there's so much more work just just telling the student, wait, don't do that, but this fingering and whatever it is that... Um, <laughs> As Gabriel Mesa would say, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that is, it's, uh, it's almost like a little course correction or or something that had to happen given the the long history of of western music and how do, how do we how do we advance in the future while reinvigorating or re-entering our performance of old music without just sort of slavishly adhering to these traditions that we don't understand where they came from so yeah and oh you said something really great earlier and i have to backtrack to remember it um before Schumann, um, I'm sorry, it's, it's okay. Um, you're talking about um, performance practice late 19th century. I, Schnabel, I, I, I can't remember. I'm sorry. It's okay. Um, oh, well, well, you know, this, this is actually relevant. Um, looking at old editions can be somewhat enlightening because you actually do get to understand how music was played a very long time ago. We have we owe the or text movements a debt of gratitude for providing us with at least completely unadulterated, uh, preserved reprints of, of scores that otherwise um, people may not care so much about. Unfortunately, an urtext performance is really a, a, a textbook performance if now i remember what i was going to say instead of instead of saying um you know we have to do exactly what beethoven wrote we have to do exactly what bach wrote do exactly what chopin wrote but then that asks the question in which manuscript um you know instead of saying we must do what the composer wrote all the time that's our you know that's where we start it's um again what what um, Paul Hirsch used to tell us, um, play what's clearly printed on the page. That's where we start. In our performances, we don't want to play just what the composer wrote. We want to play what the composer was communicating. They're not the same sometimes. That This is also you know, a matter of taste, but putting our, our character on the line and, or not our character, but our musical personality and our, our, our integrity and seeing you know, how much we have to change to do what the composer specifically said. But how do we communicate that extremely clearly? Can a sforzando in a Beethoven sonata really send the, are we too, um, sterilized in our 21st century listening because of absolutely immaculate recording or when we go to a performance um, is you know because it's no perfect does it still pack a wallop the same way it would have in the late 18th early 19th centuries and um, there's a there's a baroque flautist Bartold Koiken who was one of the pioneers in the early music movement. Um, he wrote this fantastic book called The Notation is Not the Music. And 
there's a wonderful uh, Japanese philosophers saying in the very beginning of the book, and I wish I had it in front of me, but he says, essentially, drink from the same spring as the master. Hmm. That's really what we're going for. We want to try to reach for the same echelon of human communication that the composer was going after. And that's, this is why understanding context, committing to communicate the musical score as the starting place, that, that's where this really comes from. So in the end, the lessons we're taught in our modern conservatory training and the lessons that historical performance teaches us are really one same. They just might be a different way of looking at the same score. Yeah, that, I, I love that. And, and it's, it's worth remembering too, funnily enough, you know, you're talking about the, um, the legendary like Brahms recordings of these great uh, pianists around the turn of the century when they're playing Brahms, they knew Brahms, all of this stuff. You know, they're not playing off of Urtex. <laughs> they're, they're playing off of whatever <laughs> weird additions they had back then. And yet they had direct, you know, in, influence from the composer. So who's closer? Someone today who's following the precise markings that are well-researched and indexed or someone who was probably working from a... It, by our standards today, an extremely messy score and mm -hmm. is yet able to produce this incredibly exciting performance that gets at the spirit of the composer because it's an oral tradition. Music is an oral tradition at the end of the day. Mm. I thought, it's very I, true. I, I think, you know, I, I haven't necessarily articulated it this way before, but I think I like the idea of an or text as limiting variables, because if you, be, as you've said, if you, if you, if you um, use an urtext as purely like the textbook, and I'm not going to depart from it in any way, I'm just going to try to do exactly what's on the page, there is a definite risk of sterility. Indeed, that's a, a major problem. Um, however, um, you know, in using later editions, all you're doing is you're taking that urtext and then you're also, you know, adding these slurs and these weird other markings that someone else wrote and there's context for those two, especially if it's a great editor. There's context for those two, but that's an equal part of the performance practice, you know, on top of the um, on top of the or text. So you're complicating yeah. matters by adding context. So I think that's the great benefit of the or text. You're just kind of removing those extra layers of interpretation, which might be helpful, and it might have been written there by Schnabel or by Courteau and it, or it could be like a great performer giving you his insight. But, but short of that, it's the Ortex is giving you clarity and lack of variables. Yeah, I agree. Um, it's interesting. You, you mentioned Schnabel again, um, because I was just thinking of Shermer's edition of Beethoven sonatas, which um, in their old catalog was like the first two books in their catalog. <laughs> Um, Hans von Burlov, pardon my German, uh, he it's pretty he good. It. <laughs> it's Hans von Burlov. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm going to take diction this semester, so that'll fix that. Um, he produced this, by our standards, terrible edition of the Beethoven sonatas, but at the same time, he studied with Liszt. 
So he's even further back in time than Schnabel. And I, both, both editions are extremely highly edited, but they give us information about how things were played. And Boulard was even, even closer to Beethoven than Schnabel. I would, I would never play from that edition, you know, to learn a piece from. But to want some information, might not be such a bad idea. Yeah, that's cool. There were, and there, there were some great performers who produced editions. Um, for instance, uh, um, there's Schenker's edition, uh, which at least tried to be her text. <laughs> there's still some things that raise eyebrows. There's some things about Schenker that raises eyebrows, but that's there's there's some scandal in the theory world about that right now. <laughs> Again, for if you ever interview my wife, maybe she can tell you a thing or two about that. <laughs> um, but then there's there are people like Friedberg who wanted to make things as plain as possible and do away with all this other stuff, and then of course in performance. Then comes the oral tradition. Yes, interesting. Uh, that's cool. That's really interesting. I mean, um, I sometimes wonder because my I'm my lineage, my lineage, my violinistic uh, <laughs> forefathers include Paganini. So, which is <laughs> rare because I, my teacher Nina Bodnar studied with Zeno Francescati, studied with his father, who studied with Camillo Savori, who was the only accredited pupil of Paganini. So that's, that's a cool, a cool line. And, and Francescati made a lot of additions, which are actually kind of notorious among violinists because I mean, yeah, I think yeah, it's I kind of, it. it's uh it's assumed that Francescati just had a bizarre, bizarre hands. <laughs> like he just had a bizarre <laughs> technique. So what worked for him is not working for 90% of violinists, but, um, but that it's interesting for that reason too. Well, you we know that how much uh, of that was passed on. We do know that Paganini had some had a strange yeah. left hand. Yeah, he had and like I mean, a acromegaly or something. Yeah, um, Marfan syndrome, I believe it's called. Um, oh, and I don't and, know the name. Yeah, yeah, but um, Francescotti had big hands too, so you never know. You, never you know. have some fairly large hands yourself. I do, I do. You know, I'm trying <laughs> trying to work up some Paganini right now, but um, I just a couple more. Um, couple more uh, topics I wanted to cover with you. So one was just, a, I, I read your paper about uh, tempo and Brahms, which touches on a lot of the topics we've been talking about. Um, I wanted to uh, get your um, get your take on this. So are you, are you aware of Wim Winters? I was hoping you wouldn't ask me that. <laughs> <laughs> I am. Can, can I, um, can I uh, ask your opinion on the uh, double beat theory? You could, but you'll have to censor the rest of the podcast. <laughs> okay, good. I, I mean, it's oh, so gosh. funny. I, the, I, I uh, follow, do uh, you know the YouTube channel Box Scholar? Oh, probably not. I mean, I, you should send it to me. I'd oh, yeah, I'll, I'll send it, it to you. Um, because I just kind of independently, I, I follow this channel. I watch some of its videos. It's kind of interesting. And then he's been posting all of these things about historical tempo recently. And it's like, you know what? I, oh, yeah. I, I should talk. I should talk with Michael about this. So um, <laughs> it's, I, I take it. This is a matter of some uh, debate in the, in the hip community. 
Well, I've been following this phenomenon <laughs> for a little bit, and the Reader's Digest version is that anybody who's going to call his page Authentic Sound, or his channel Authentic Sound, and censor all disagreements yeah. on YouTube and elsewhere probably means there's some kind of a complex going on of <laughs> not willing to admit when you're wrong but this is it's interesting uh, the one time i actually decided to listen to maybe a little bit about what this guy's talking about i believe there is his a discussion of beethoven's hammer clavier sonata in which his timing of it ends up being like, geez, um, 65 minutes, probably longer. Most pianists will pull it off with repeats in about 45 to 50. I, um, I, I'm not as, that's one sonata I sadly have not learned, but um, I don't feel so bad because it's extremely difficult, but anyway. There's an account of Liszt performing the piece and this is where we do have to use salt going over, um, go, going through period quote evidence. It apparently took him about an hour to play it. Hmm. The thing is, we go to recordings of Brahms, um, timings that are documented um, during premieres. A, a critic might um, be taking notes and say, "Okay, well." Piece with this, the performance of this symphony took this long. And so you, you think that, okay, these, these performances are happening about the same time, but their tempos are radically different. So how reliable are the critics, first of all? Um, the critics then are, and now are probably listening to different things. We, we don't know. It's right. Music journalism is um, unfortunately not um, my strong suit. But the double beat theory was debunked a long time ago. Um, William S. Newman wrote a, a wonderful book called Beethoven on Beethoven, in which he goes into the performance practices of Beethoven's time based on Beethoven's scores, his, the lessons he taught, the early biographies that, I mean, some of it has to be sifted through, um, but still, he, make, he does make reference to the double beat theory and also makes reference to its complete um, trashing by reliable music scholars. So it's, it's really just a, a blip on the radar that unfortunately has gotten more attention than it deserves. So my, and my the thing understanding... Is we, we, Sorry, go ahead. Oh, I mean, just to just to give some context, my understanding of it is that because many of Beethoven's temp metronome markings are oddly fast, right? Mm -hmm. um, so you so you have this sort of uh, double beat theory, which is that oh, it's the double it's referring in a four four piece. It's essentially cut time, so it's referring to the half bar rather than every beat. That's my understanding of it, right? Is that what it is? Some. Something like that. I, I'm not sure I completely understand it. Either. And there's there's some equal there's some other kind of division for the three four. I'm assu I'm assuming or repeat 
pieces in three. I don't, I don't know, to be honest. <laughs> Maybe well, it's the whole bar. This is interesting. <laughs> this is interesting because, again, early editions of the Beethoven sonatas, which are extraordinarily um, edited, still have metronome markings. Cherny has metronome markings for most, if not all of Beethoven's works. So is this guy going to come along and tell us that Cherny or Beethoven's own student got it completely wrong? Right. Um, that's a little bizarre. Granted the difference between <laughs> uh, Beethoven and Cherny in this, in the performance of these pieces, besides, you know, different people was that, Unfortunately, Beethoven could not hear. His instruments were usually abused because, he, I mean, he, chopping off the legs of the piano so it's on the floor so we can just feel the vibrations in his chest, for instance, or yeah. snapping strings, tangling hammers, all, all of this stuff. Does, what does that, could, what could that infer or imply, imply whatever the word is about at his metronome was it in the best working condition <laughs> yeah i mean we don't know but one thing is for sure to play a passionata at a dotted quarter equals 50 and taking about 20 minutes is, uh, <laughs> who who has the patience to sit through that when it's so it it, it just defies two almost 200 years of performance tradition and I'm reluctant to say tradition because it implies that there's no, there may not be enough grounding for it. Music tradition and um, liturgical tradition are sometimes very different things, as you know. <laughs> but the early sources on these on performing these pieces tell us certain metronome markings that, for the most part, have remained constant over the last 200 years and um i wish people would bring this up more often mm -hmm. interesting and even I, I should say that even churney's markings sometimes are a little on the fast side mm -hmm. but you know they were dealing with uh, a broadwood and an erard and a playel piano not the modern steinway and bosendorfer <laughs> that's true it's true. The sounds are very different. It's. I mean, I hope that um, answers your question. Yeah. No. I. I. I guess that's. I'm. I'm glad. I. I knew you'd have a good, uh, an interesting opinion about it. <laughs> we oh, we never talked about this. So, but, I mean, I'd be interested to know if metronomes from that time are still existent. I mean, like, if we could actually look at them. My guess is that they're just not precise. I mean, you know the watch like i don't know what the standardization on watches and clocks and just mechanical things <laughs> from the the 17 early 1800s are but my guess is that it's unbelievably uh, crude compared to what we have today so i mean my my extremely uninformed opinion would be that metronomes probably varied by manufacturer could um, be I mean I don't know, but um, it's interesting to note that both uh, Haydn and Mozart composed pieces for like mechanical organ, huh. which can be replicated now. And I, I have heard that the Tempe are a little something, but again, this is this is um, a little outside of my knowledge. Yeah, beyond my pay grade. Well, now, now we're just we're just speculating wildly. So, 
<laughs> I think I said earlier that that the tempi are fast and then you the they represent the half bar, which makes zero sense. It would have to be if the tempi is too fast and double beat would say that two clicks equals a beat. Anyway, whatever. I don't know. I don't know what I'm talking about. Um so I don't know what this stuff involves. <laughs> <laughs> well it's good we're talking about it and setting it straight. <laughs> yeah. Um good. Well I mean I guess the last thing on my mind is I'd be interested to hear how you're dealing with it is that this podcast has been really fun. Um, don't know what is going to come of it. I'm going to keep doing it as long as I want to. And, and so far it's been uh, absolutely fun to catch up with old friends and people I have met before. Um, and it's just James a nice Kirksey's podcast. Pretty, pretty hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> Shout out to James. Tell him hi for me. I will. I will. Yeah, James is great. Um, now, so I, I have, you know, this is almost my little quarantine project where, okay, we're all spending more time online. We're trying to create content. So this is what I'm doing. I've, I've noticed in myself a deep struggle musically that has happened with this quarantine because ever since graduating... I've been fortunate to join Quartet San Francisco and to be, you know, kind of performing on a very, thank you, on a very uh, tight gig basis. So we're getting ready for concerts and if not concerts, a recording or whatever it is, there's always this very urgent need. And then all the, your practice is funneled into this urgent performance that's coming up. And since quarantine, I've had not just I've had not just a lack of motivation besides the few things QSF has done and the few things I've decided to learn and put up on Instagram but it's not just that there isn't external motivation I think recently more recently I've been struggling with this feeling that my identity as a musician over the last few years and maybe through school Honestly, I can't remember the last time I wasn't driving my practice towards something. Um, maybe it's just a problem of self-motivation, but I have this weird inability to commit to learning something because it always feels like, well, I'm just, this, this, it's like a hobby now. Like, what am I getting, what am I preparing for? But as a result, let me, sorry, before I move on, let me, let me drill down on that a little bit. I feel like I can't, focus on something and learn it in a disciplined way because I don't see, I don't feel this, I don't feel any drive towards it, but almost like this, it almost feels um, self-indulgent. Like I'm just going to learn this because I want to. I haven't uh -huh. ever had to before. So I have this weird observation that my identity as a musician has been sort of consumed with what is functional? What is practical? What do I have to get ready for now? And now as I have all this free time to actually practice and do something new and different that I want to do, I'm stuck with this thing like, oh my God, like my musical identity has become wrapped up with what I can accomplish and what I can go towards. So I think, you know, um, I saw this really nice post. I don't know. Do you know about Street Symphony? I uh, Maybe. I come across it I, I can't <clears throat> say 
it's a um, it's an organization in um, in uh, Los Angeles that um, to be frank I don't I don't understand all of the implications of what it does but essentially it's a nonprofit that's it goes towards empowering people on Skid Row um, in uh, Los Angeles so the poorest of the poor and um, essentially revitalizing the community there and offering arts and offering classes and education but the founder of that VJ Gupta shared this thing recently where he he's been posting a video of Bach beautiful he plays unbelievably by the way you would love it actually <laughs> um, he, he plays uh, I think you know with a Baroque bow a440 but beautifully beautifully um, informed performance VJ Gupta right and he um, posted this thing the other day about how for him he has this sort of philosophy about practice as like this discipline, like the, the, the discipline of submitting yourself to daily practice is a, is a basically a source of joy. Like there's a spiritual element of submitting yourself to something for its own sake that gives you joy. And I was like, huh, well, I definitely, <laughs> I haven't been thinking about it that way at all. And I've, I'm, um, I maybe need more of that. So how are you doing? Have, do you struggle with the same thing? Well, <laughs> I, th I think the music world right now is deeply yearning for an audience. I've, Hillary Santoso and another friend at Michigan. Um, Hillary was a classmate of ours in San Francisco. Shout out. Um, yeah, Hillary and I, I think her... I think her name is Alyssa Freeman. I think that's right. Anyway, Hillary and her friend started this online uh, concert series called the 5 p.m. series, which it, it, it takes in donations for musicians, uh, each one performing, and then for just musicians at large, just to give them place to, a, a, quote, place to perform, even if it's a place on the Internet. And I played a clavichord recital for them, February, uh, no, sorry, May. Uh, it's very, very fun, even if I couldn't really see my audience. Um, so that, for me, that was something to practice towards. Finishing my piano DMA lecture recital, that was something to practice towards. But largely, I, I, I do understand the, this feeling of why am I playing if no one's going to be listening? And I have felt some guilt about this. Um, but then I, I was watching an interview of um, Garrick Olson with the uh, piano informational source blog video channel. It's, it's this wonderful thing called Tone Base. And, and the interviewer was, was talking with Garrick Olson is a fabulous pianist. He won the, he was the, he's the only Amer American to have won the Chopin competition in Warsaw. And he currently teaches San Francisco, actually. He just started teaching there. And this guy has played it all. He's played everywhere. He's, he's just an unbelievable pianist. And he said that, well, since I don't have titles much, although he's done some online, I have practiced a little less um, urgently, but I, I, get to, I get some time and space to 
play rap I've been interested in working on the well-tempered clavier and I'm thinking dude I feel so much better (laughs) (laughs) um I think the pandemic has it has forced live on very very limited means for some time which is you know a great tragedy for the arts we know it won't last forever it's happened before it will likely happen again um which the onus is on us to show kindness to each other man this is this is the other this this time sorry i I was just about to interrupt the most heartfelt thing you were gonna say (laughs) sorry but i mean i was just gonna say this is the uh this is ultimate historically informed performance we have plagues going on there's wars people are getting bitten by dogs this is the ultimate uh uh, (laughs) this is like the ultimate 1700 simulator (laughs) well um Neither of us have like uh, twenty. We, there's some some of it we're um, leaving out, but <laughs> um, uh, at this, yeah. So we're we're living in difficult times, uh, but you know, if if we are willing to submit ourselves to daily practice, um, there is there is some joy in that i i find just being able to work through something on the piano i've been trying to get my attention to for some time or i'm practicing on the clavichord because i i don't have a harpsichord i actually don't even have a piano it's a weighted keyboard i'm borrowing but um, fortunately i've i've had a private figured bass and continual student over the summer and we're doing lessons remotely, but I get so much joy out of sharing music in that. And in the brief lines I've, I've had over the summer, the limited ones I've had, um, listening to music is, is wonderful. We have so much more time to do it. We can get outdoors and explore nature go on a 30 mile bike ride like I did this morning in absolutely beautiful wooded area, you know, in Southern Ohio, or try new recipes, read Rilke read for the first time in my life. And Ooh, uh, I mean, read, cloud nine. Read, read Rilke? Yes. I've, I've never read Rilke before. It's so beautiful. Every angel is terrifying. That's what I remember from, from his Duino elegies. <laughs> what what um, I, read, I read the letters what, to a young poet oh cool also i i'm not super familiar with that one yeah read the duino elegies kind of it's amazing for my students i'll write that down too do um, so do i've been I, doing I i've been doing pretty well um my wife has a job at ace hardware i, I have this private student um gotten a little gig money post facto so we're doing okay good glad to hear it it's interesting she goes and she goes and works i take care of the um cooking and um dishes and we split some chores and then then i do the grocery shopping (laughs) 
Good man. The the stay at home right now. <laughs> the houseman. That's what the Germans say. The houseman. No, I'm the man at the house. So. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Man, it's been a good talk. I think how long have we been going? Well over an hour. So let's call wow. it good. Let's call it good. This was a pleasure, man. It's been way too long since I've seen you. Um, let me know next time you head out west. Seeing as you are dating the best friend of our former across-the-street neighbor <laughs> yeah. from 20 years ago, uh -huh. I'm, um, I'm sure our paths will, will cross again soon. Yes. I need to get myself out there. It's been a long yeah. time. Yep. Well, wait until it's not like giant power outages and fires. <laughs> now is not the best time right. to be here. <laughs> I mean, what's what's next? Locusts and hail, and fortunately, we don't have any kids, so no, no death. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that born. that one, <laughs> that plague, you can rest easy for now. But uh, I actually think I did hear about some locusts in the news, so. <laughs> so murder hornets yeah murder hornets so that too but man thank you uh, my pleasure it was great talking you too all right we'll get this out there we'll get get the word on get people educated about some historically informed performance <laughs> sure. all right you have a great one. i'll make sure to put this on uh, my facebook and instagram and stuff oh thank you i appreciate it all right. Peace. See you later. Adios.